Words and Music is an intimate, groundbreaking Audible series that blends in-depth memoir with exclusive performances to reveal the storied lives and singular creative vision of music icons. Each thoughtfully crafted volume is as unique and varied as the artist delivering it. Words and Music brings together an extraordinary roster of once-in-a-generation artists, visionaries, trailblazers, and consummate storytellers, including Smokey Robinson, Alanis Morissette, Billy Joe Armstrong, Sting, St. Vincent, and Beck, among many others. Hear them and other groundbreaking artists share their stories and songs, unscripted and unfiltered. Listen to Words and Music, an Audible original series. Go to audible.com backslash words and music to start listening. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, host of Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we're bringing you an episode of our sister podcast, Rolling Stone's Musicians on Musicians, featuring Rick Rubin and Phineas. I mean, Musicians on Musicians seems like a nice, obvious title for this in a sort of like, that's, I'm always looking for like the Captain Obvious title for everything. Like, I know what I'm getting from Musicians on Musicians. I was offended by it. (laughs) Musicians on Musicians is an oppressive statement. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to change it to Musicians versus Musicians, you can always amend it to that. Or Musicians with Musicians would be (laughs) a little more inclusive, I think. (laughs) I was offended by it. It makes me laugh. For more than 50 years, the writers at Rolling Stone have been sitting down with artists to go inside their sound, their creative process, and the quirks and perks of being a musician. But what happens when we take the writer away and ask two great producers from two different generations to interview each other? Specifically, what might we hear when a genre-crossing legend sits down with a young star he influenced to talk about their studio methods, their listening habits, and the frustrations and the joys involved in making great music? This is Rick Rubin. This is Phineas. And this is Musicians on Musicians. Rick Rubin started Def Jam Records out of his NYU dorm room in the 1980s and went on to produce classic albums by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Johnny Cash, and many others. He's still going strong. In addition to his continued collaboration with groups like the Chili Peppers and the Strokes, his book, The Creative Act, hits bookstores in 2023. Ruben sat down with a young talent making waves of his own, Phineas O'Connell. Phineas produced his sister Billie Eilish's 2019 smash hit debut in his childhood bedroom in LA and has a career of his own as an incisive singer-songwriter. Just last year, he released his solo debut, Optimist. Ruben was a key influence when Phineas was growing up, and their conversation revealed two restless and innovative minds eager to learn from one another. Well, I have so many questions for you, so I'm I'm excited. I'm going to start asking them. Um, okay, we take turns. I was like looking up your production discography today, and like before this, because I was like, there's stuff that I've forgotten that you did that I wanted to talk about, and it was like. It was like, it split it up into 10s. It was like 2020s, 2010s, 2000s, which is so sick, and 90s. Um, do you ever listen to an album from 15 years ago that you produced and think like, ooh, I'd do some cool new stuff on this if I were producing this today? Never, ever. No, never? I never look back. Uh, I, I don't listen to them unless there's a reason. Like if someone asked me a question about something and I have to listen to it as a reference. I might hear it somewhere out in the world. I was in London 
last week at a, a little shop and a song I produced came on. It's always a great feeling like hearing it. From, yeah, so cool. And, and I pictured 25 years ago, I was in a studio in the Valley in California and now I'm in London and the song is coming on in this little shop. What are the odds? Like, what are the so odds? Cool. I can remember exactly where we were when this was made and now it's being played here. So that's a great feeling. But that's really the only time that I, I, uh, I listen back. That's so interesting. It's exciting to see how you got to be who you are and how you make the things you make. General songwriting question. Do yeah. lyrics ever come before the music? And do the lyrics come from a story, fantasy, or something in real life? All of the above lyrics often come before um, music. I love a good hook or a good line or some turn of phrase. That usually in will inspire a whole song. And then the, the thing I do more than anything else is what somebody referred to as Ouija board songwriting, which is like playing a chord and opening your mouth and saying stuff all at the same time. And it's half gibberish. And then you land on a, on a thing and you get somewhere. So that's like the most common. But yeah, often titles or lyrics. I'm reading a book right now called um, Milk Fed. It's a novel. And there, there was some line about like the, the God that they believed in is a punishing God. And I thought like punishing God was such a like, you know, strong e phrase, such a strong phrase. And every qualm yeah. I have with certain religious practices is, is belief in a punishing God. Like I was, I'd never and really put it that way. Every qualm I have is a great phrase too. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not lose that. And every qualm no, yeah. I have. It's mu yeah. very, you have a musical way about you, sir. <laughs> Did you have a dream of a job in life that wasn't music or or just a, a plan for a job in life that wasn't music? No, I really, really, really wanted to be a musician uh, professionally. Always. Yeah, so Amazing. bad. That's and great. so I was so thrilled and relieved because really like from the time I was 12 was like, oh my God, if I could just make music for a living. So I, from 12 to 18, I was fairly stressed all the time. Um, and I feel like there, I was so relieved that like that I'd made one more step toward that at 18 and definitely still kind of, you know, felt all sorts of, um, imposter syndrome or at the very least, like, you know, was very inexperienced and super hungry to learn more. But I was so relieved that like, oh, maybe I'll get to make music for a living. That'd be cool. Amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> so cool. thank you. Thank yeah, you. So cool. I still like, feel isn't it, so lucky. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah when yeah. dreams come true, it's an amazing thing. We're, we're yeah. blessed. I look at your breadth in your career, like the uh, uh, amount of projects that you're able to touch and, and the quality control is incredible too, in my opinion. And I see what I think of like as like a master delegator. Do you feel like a master delegator or or is it sort of uh, a byproduct of what you do because that's one of the many things I'm very inspired by you is like I see you like giving people the, the steering wheel and being like I think you could drive in this direction but trusting them to drive the car and I think that's really exciting I think from the beginning um, when I first started in hip-hop days I created all the music myself and there was right. a lot of writing involved even lyrics yeah and I came to realize very quickly that if I wanted to work on a lot of stuff, I can't write everything myself. If I, you know, and the greatest writers yeah. in the world can write an album or two albums of material right. a year. That's it. Right. That's it. Totally. And I love music so much and I love all kinds of music. 
So it seems like that was probably the first thing to think, okay, I'm not going to, and it's also maybe the most time consuming, the writing. Absolutely. So I, so I stepped away from writing and focused more on just the way it sounded and the, uh, and when I say sounded, the arrangement of the song, whether the material was good enough. Um, but very rarely do I get involved in writing and try my best not to just from a time perspective it's like it's a it's a it's a choice yeah that's so that was the first piece and then I used to work very very long hours in the studio which was standard in those days maybe for some people it still is and I would work from you know an hour or two after I woke up until I was exhausted right and then you know drove home as the sun was coming up and went to sleep and I found it wasn't the most effective use of time being in the studio that long. And I, I, again, just through doing it a long time, I started seeing, okay, what are, what's important? What are the most important things to happen in the studio? And what are the most important parts for me to be there for? And when we're doing, let's say we're recording a band and it's basic tracks, it's really important that I'm there for the basic tracks. If one of the musicians wants to try a bunch of different overdubs to see which is the best one, I might not, not be important. there for that. No. For the singer to do the vocals, I'm probably there for the vocals because right. it's front and center and where we really are aware of it. Um, and then in the, in the stuff that happens when I'm not there, I get to listen to it the next day and say, hmm, this really works. Maybe there's a better version of this. Let's try adding one of these. Or it's perfect just the way it is. So I found through, now usually the sessions that I, I have are from, let's say, one in the afternoon to six in the evening for me, and then I leave, but there's usually a list of things to try, and then the engineers and sometimes the artist continue working into the night, probably you know another six hours or so, and then in the morning when I come in, there's another batch to listen to of, okay, what did what did this stuff work? What is it, or does this take us in a new direction that we didn't know we were going to go? Because that that happens yeah. too, you know. So so much of it, um, we'll have an idea of what to try, and the thing that we try is only an invitation to get us where we really want to go, but we didn't know it when when we were there before. So sick. It's so true. I think about it all the time. And I think what you're describing too is like you, you're coming in the next day with a perspective that you wouldn't even have Absolutely. if you were present for all 50 takes because you'd be like, well, that was the, the, the one that we felt was the best in the moment. And at the end, you're just left with the perspective of like, this one sounds the best, you know, even if technically maybe it's a little bit looser or whatever it is. That's, that's a really key point. And I like to spend as little time listening as possible for that reason. Once you hear something a hundred times one way, it's very difficult to hear it a different way and have the other way sound like what you want. Right. We get ingrained. It gets imprinted in our brain. Even when we're thinking it's not finished, it's not finished, it's not finished. Right. Same. I, I also, these days, I don't take music out of the studio with me. I never listen to the music that we're working on when I'm not working on it for exactly that reason. I always want to come in fresh as if I'm hearing it for the first time. So which is how the how the listener hears it. Yeah, it's true. I feel like the how the listener hears something as a listener is sort of the most intimidating part of of the releasing of music for me because I I've so often heard a song and and rejected it at first and then 
a week later been hit by it in a different way and loved it. And so I, I think that's like, I'm very confident in my work, but I'm also very aware of like how fallible people are. And you know, you might hear something on your phone when you're tired and not have it sink in or whatever. So I always sort of like hope that people are exposed to the song more than once, just because I need that. Do you tend to listen to music as songs or as whole projects? I tend to listen to music as songs, at least in the discovery um, space of it. I love to listen to a, an album, but I feel like more often it's it's songs in terms of discovery. Um, but I love to listen to albums I love. Like if I'm on a flight, I'll I'll commit to the full record. If I'm on a drive, I'll commit to the full record. I love bodies of work, obviously. What, what would be an example of an album that you might commit to for a flight? I listen to uh, one of my favorite artists is the is the artist Feist, Leslie Feist. She has a, a couple albums that are of my favorites. Um, the Reminder, so great. Um, and then there's an album called Pleasure. Those are the ones I've been listening to recently. And then I spend a lot of time listening to Cake this year. I really love the band Cake. I'd really love a new great Cake record, personally. I think they're so groovy and good. And they're aging really well. Maybe, maybe you can make one with them. That would <laughs> yeah, be fun. Maybe. That would be really cool. What about you? Is there an album lately that you've been putting on and listening to all the way through? I, I tend to listen to um, music by an artist, not necessarily a specific album, although sometimes a specific album and very rarely a song. It's usually like I want to listen to The Doors <laughs> and then I'll yeah. listen to a lot of music by The Doors or I want to listen to uh, The Beatles right. and I listen to a lot of Beatles music or Frank Sinatra. Yeah. I listen to a lot of Frank Sinatra. Tends to be... Um, not specific it's more the that flavor is the flavor i want i grew up a little bit that way we were listening to mix cds that our dad would burn in the car and the beatles you know all my favorite music is the beatles and and i grew up with no awareness of what beatles album contained what songs they were all sort of like him picking his favorites from these albums and putting them on a mix CD and then us listening to them and then doing the same the others so like it's it's only really been as an adult that I have any awareness of like which songs were on Magical Mystery Tour and which songs were on Abbey Road as a kid I just knew the songs and it's been an interesting sort of like oh these songs go back to back into each other in order because I never heard them that way yeah I've said before that whatever little bit I'd know about music is from listening to the Beatles and luckily listening to it from the time I was, you know, three years old yeah. until, until I started picking music myself. Right. Um, but just the DNA mm. of that brilliance is in me, mm -hmm. um, through osmosis. Who, what, what were the other things you might've heard on your dad's CDs? My dad's CDs were, were sort of things that he'd loved for a long time, like the Beatles or Simon and Garfunkel or Pink Floyd. And then it was, he was, my dad, both of our parents, but my dad was the one burning the CDs, so I'll credit him with this. It was also a lot of current pop stuff that he loved. We had a lot of like Avril Lavigne on those mixed CDs. I think like I'm With You, the album had maybe just come out. So there's a bunch of those songs. Um, there was uh, Sixpence, None the Richer, Dido. Um, I think like Natalie Imbruglia was on there. It was a lot of like great 2000s pop. So, so really my whole music education, I feel was like Beatles and then like 2000s, that kind of like, like pop rock that's come, that's come back in a huge way, like soft drum kit, acoustic guitar, 
often female vocals, just like gorgeous, heartbreaking songs. You you said earlier about uh, when you were younger, you'd be you were stressed <laughs> with the possibility of becoming, you know, with yeah. the desire to become a musician. Yeah. And in listening to your new album, I pick up a lot of stress in the lyrics <laughs> that I wanted to ask you about, where you're projecting into the future, yeah. and you, there are there are multiple multiple references to, you know, being forgotten and um, moving on and. Yeah. Um, a medieval story yeah. there, there's a bunch of them yeah it's why keep keep coming up and um i wanted to ask do you do you uh do you spend a lot of time projecting into the future <laughs> oh yeah for sure and and i and and sort of the the double-edged sword of that is projecting into the future or like longing for the future we've spent this whole year on tour essentially and i find it so hard to be present in my day when i'm on tour I wrote this song on my most recent album that I wrote during COVID called Only a Lifetime. And it's all just sort of about like, you know, being present and that life's, life's short and, you know, you shouldn't waste it waiting for time to pass. And I remember writing it and very like arrogantly thinking like I've, I've cracked it. And, you know, I did, the, I did it again the next day. You know, that's the sort of hilarity of all of it. It's like, I'm still. Yeah. It ends up being a song to yourself. Yeah. What do you wake up each day looking forward to most? I think seeing the sun. I really love to wake up and go straight out into the sun and I look forward to feeling the heat of the sun on my body. That's my, it's it's pretty uh, immediate. Yeah. And interestingly, while like you, I'm always booked up with stuff to do, I don't even want to think about what I have to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I start with this clean slate of uh, enjoying the morning, enjoying the sun, sometimes meditating i've been doing this um tai chi ruler practice and um it's like a 20 minute movement meditation but it does a similar thing to the sitting practices where the rest of the world goes away when you're in this process and mm. feels really good i love that yeah i like also the physical nature of it. it's nice do you feel a desire to sort of under schedule your life or under commit to to, to leave room for spontaneity because i feel like you're in a position where there's so many opportunities Absolutely. presenting I'm, I'm themselves torn. all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm torn because I also love making things and excited about, even when I don't love making things, the possibility of knowing something can be made better is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so the feeling of, oh, I know, I know I can help and we can work together and make something really beautiful. Okay, let's do that instead of <laughs> what I want to do. You know, it's like it's a... <laughs> So that I think yeah. the um, the desire for the creation of beautiful things seems to trump all others. <laughs> yeah, making music to me does bring me joy and satisfaction, but also can really frustrate me and really, uh, you know, be tedious or or, or uh, exhausting. But but all of it is sort of secondary to the compulsion to do it to me. Right? Yeah. I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking about. Oh, this is going to be really joyous or this is going to be really hard it's just like i have to do that today yeah yeah, the, yeah and the compulsion to see it through to something beautiful mm -hmm. because a lot of it is not that you know a lot of it no. is like the the there's a great deal of patience involved and yeah. trial and error and um failures along the way to get to this thing it's like ah there it is and yeah. um and being uh, humble enough to know it isn't really from us you know we're, yeah. we're part of it we're involved 
but we can't do it on our own. You know, when it's good, something much bigger is happening. And um, that's, that's, that's the, the work. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I think it's shocking every time how bad things can be on their way to being good. Like, yeah. like blows my mind when you're in the middle of something. It's like solving a Rubik's Cube. Like you're so far from solving it right before you solve it. You listen to it and you're like, tomorrow this might get amazing. And today it's so bad. <laughs> it kind of like blows me away. And I think yeah. like the exciting thing is that it's every time. Like every time. I, there's a bit of a house of cards thing going on also where as you're building it, it's getting better. And then, you know, one, you breathe on it wrong and the whole thing <laughs> collapses. Oh, it, yeah. It's so, it's yeah. so delicate. The whole, yeah. the whole thing is, um, it's pretty mystical. <laughs> yeah. As a producer for other artists and other great songwriters, like I try to be really in service of what they're going through. So, you know, if I've, if I've listened to their music and liked it and I'm showing up to them, what I'm going through is, is super secondary to what they're going through. And we do the hours of, of, you know, talking and, and it's all listening on my part or, or sort of like carefully asked questions because I want to understand what they're going through as well as I can. But then even then the, the production that I'm doing, you know, is influenced by the stuff I was listening to on the car ride over or what I've been loving at home. Um, and I can't really pretend it's not. It helps me to be in a um, peaceful, beautiful place, whether it be a forest or an ocean or some place that, that feels like um, you get nourished from the surroundings and most of the artists I work with come to these places uh, to work with me and it, it tends to have a very positive effect to create some sense of adventure for an album I just recorded um, we just did the basic tracks for a new strokes album we recorded on a mountaintop in Costa Rica outside the band was like doing a concert for the ocean and it was incredible. And we did that for a month and they didn't want to leave. It was so beautiful. Um, and there, there's no question something about that place is going to be imbued in the music that was made. Can't help it. That The new Abnormals is really, at the very least, tied for like my favorite Strokes album. And I've been a fan of the Strokes forever. And I was so happy to, to, to hear that album and love it so much. And then, of course, see that that you did it and I was so unsurprised um but I think it's such an incredible record so I really I barely I barely have like questions articulated other than just like how much of a fan of that project <laughs> I am and I think it's a real departure for them in certain ways yeah. obviously all the elements I love of their music but songs like At the Door which is like probably my favorite song on that record such a departure for them from the 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 sort of things that I knew of them how did they come to you for that record? They came to me several times before this record, two two times um, before, and both times they sent me demos. And in both cases, I didn't have a an idea of what what to do, so I I passed when I didn't see the how to do it. Um, and this one, they sent me demos, and they were by far the worst of the demos they sent. <laughs> in that they were like. Uh, you know, iPhone 30 second clips, like like the most rudimentary, sometimes it would just be a guitar riff or a kind of hooky vocal squeak, <laughs> like the, the tiniest little snippets. 
But from those snippets, like, oh, whatever this is, I want to hear the rest of it. Like, this is going to be good. And that's how that started. For that album, we went into Shangri-La in Malibu. And because they all live in different places now, and they get together rarely, they ha they did get together, I think, three for three groups of sessions leading up to that session to write songs, which they, they brought. I asked them to get there an hour before me, and in that hour, jam and write something new to play for me when I arrived. So every day there was a spontaneous, done as a group, which most of the songs were not written as a group because now they live in different places, so everybody writes their pieces, and then they put the pieces together into songs. This was an opportunity to jam as a band and make something that's interesting to them. And I would say maybe a third of the songs on the album ended up coming out of those jams that they were doing every so morning cool. before before we recorded, you know, the real songs that wow. were already written. So it was a great it was a great uh, practice. That's so awesome. Yeah, it really worked out well. I feel like you have taught so many people so much and I feel like you uh, are in such a mentorship role in the eyes and the minds of people my age. Is that ever daunting for you? And is there a person that you can point to as like a person that, that occupied that space for you in your earlier years or maybe still? The mentors I had in the music business tended to be more on the record side. Like there was a, a store I used to hang out at when I went to NYU called 99 Records. It was a cool little indie import store that sold dance 12 inches and I would hang out there and then when I wanted to make music they mentored me on where to you know where to record and where to have labels pressed and where to have vinyl pressed and where to like in those days when everything was physical how to do it um I didn't have many mentors in terms of the making of the recordings and in some ways it worked in a positive way for me because it was the, it was a time of the birth of hip hop music, and before me, the people who were making hip hop records were experienced people who made other kinds of music, and because of that, they brought all of the techniques of other type of music into hip hop, which didn't really fit hip hop. Mm -hmm. So, the, in in some ways, the fact that I didn't know what I was doing early on helped the fact that when I went to a hip hop club and I heard what it sounded like, I didn't go about making a you know, a polished produced record the way everybody else was doing it because I, tr it was truly DIY punk rock coming from me. And it was truer to what the scene actually was, which was more break beats and yeah. rock beats. And whereas the records that were coming out at that time, there were few and far between, but they were more like a R and B, you know, dressed up R and B music with somebody rapping on it. And that wasn't really the hip hop world if you, you know, if you went to a hip hop party, the mentorship for me came just from the, my voracious appetite of listening. I listened to everything and a lot. And I know, you know, I know the thing, the things that I like really touch me and all I'm ever looking to accomplish in the studio is something to get that feeling that the, the, you know, the greatest music of all time had on me how do we get that same feeling? Or how do we get something new that we haven't heard that makes me ex as excited as when I first heard something else? You know, first time I heard Gang of Four, I remember it was like, never heard anything like this before and I loved them. 
um, first time I heard Trouble Funk, which was a Washington DC go-go yeah. band. I didn't even know what to make of Trouble Funk when I first heard of them. And then eventually they became my favorite band. When I first heard the Ramones just made me laugh because it's the first time I ever heard fast music. Um, and there was no context for it. So I'm, I've, I respond well to music that, that I have no context for now. I didn't always. There were times when I would hear something and it would be too new and I would reject it and then come back around to it later uh, and realize it, it would be the most exciting thing for me. That's, that's how I did it. Wow. And, and I would say it's not daunting at all. I, I'm, our purpose on this planet is to share good stuff and whether I'm sharing it with you know, the, the artist I'm producing or another producer who's gonna share it with another set of artists, it's all good. It's like, it's all part of what it is. The reason I wrote, a, I just wrote a book that's coming out in January called The Creative Act. And the purpose of it was, I only get to work with a handful of artists, really. You know, it's a big handful, but it's still a handful compared to artists. And if somebody wanted to get a sense of the kind of stuff we talk about and think about in the studio, that's what's in the book. Can't wait to read it. It's really true. There's so few. The reason I asked that question is, and I remember this sort of happening, um, and maybe more so in a songwriting sense than in a producer sense, is a little bit different. I remember the transition from being a songwriter in a room with two, three other people writing a song together. Um, and I remember there was about a year of sort of nobody really giving a shit about my ideas. And if I had a really good one and it was obvious that it was good, it was like, oh, good idea, congrats. And then I remember there was this sort of transition where I was walking into the same rooms and people had heard songs I'd written before. And there was this kind of like, we'd all be like listening to a, a piano part together. And I'd kind of like hum something under my breath and everyone would shut up and like listen to me. And I remember being like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> like like yeah. I'm just having ideas like everybody else in the room don't don't defer to my idea you can beat my idea like i feel like the the longer i get to do this the more i defer to sort of everybody in the room on, on stuff like that same so early on in the process when we were working on music i if i had a solution i would fight for that solution and right. now and i've come to learn if quickly you know in the first few years of doing it that if i can just point out where the the thing to be solved is it's like this part's not good enough what can we do right while i may have an idea of what to do the ideas in the room nine times out of ten are better than my solution so now i'm i feel like my job is to point out these are the places where it can be better what can we do and then it, it becomes obvious again like even when sure. in the early days when they were like that's a good idea when they didn't know yeah. you had the good idea yeah the good idea, it doesn't matter where it comes from ever. It could be someone walking through the room or a friend of an artist who says something. It's like, oh yeah, that's yeah. that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for. Yeah. There's a piece on your new album, uh, The Peaches Piece, and wanted to yeah. ask, and it's to me seems rooted in classical music. Did you ever take classical piano lessons? I didn't really. I took, you know, sort of the kind of lessons you take as a six-year-old where they teach you how to do like a scale and I was very undedicated to it and really didn't devote myself to playing music until it was taught to me in a kind of a contemporary context of like, here's the four chords that are this 
song that you love, this pop song, and then guess what? If you rearrange those four chords, it's 6,000 other songs that you've heard and love. And so within that context, it's like when I really started learning. Um, but during the lockdown, I would sit at my piano and just just make up melodic instrumental pieces. And um, and I discovered that, the, that an etude, like the definition of an etude was... Uh, a, a composition typically on written for one instrument typically written to like make the person playing it better and that was like exactly what I'd been doing without knowing it was just sitting and humming a melody and then playing it and playing a left hand to accompany it and then getting better very slowly um, and so it was like just a fun practice exercise for myself it's funny that piece of music from the opening notes was captivating to me Wow, thank it, it you. It pulled me in right from, just from the first, I think it's the first three or four notes, the walk-up, pulled me in. And it's a great feeling. And that rarely happens in popular music. That's something that might happen in classical music. And it succeeded in the way that a great classical piece would. So I wanted to say thank you. Wow. Thank you for that's that. That's such a, I'm very honored. Thank you so much. That was, uh, Peaches is my, is my dog, too. I named it for my, for my dog. Was the dog in the room when you wrote it? The whole time, yeah. yeah. For the, every every night when I'd sit and work on it, she's she would chill on the couch and gnaw on some you know some part of a an animal. Growing up, did you ever play in bands? I did. I kind of thought that was all there was in music for a for a time, or at least that was like all my ambition was. I, I thought being in a band, like what could possibly beat that? I just loved the way that bands sounded and the idea of making music alone seemed insane to me. And I touched on this a little earlier, but I, again, like I was so hell bent on being a musician professionally that I was, you know, so demanding of my poor best friends as a 13 year old, you know, and serious in a way that like, if I could time travel now, I'd go back and I'd be like, you take this as seriously as you want. Go for like, go for it. Take it as seriously as you want. But don't really, you don't really have to bully these, <laughs> these three other kids who are going to do whatever they want with their lives into practicing six hours a day every day with you. Um, but I, I appreciate them indulging me as a teenager. What did you play in the band? I sang and I played some rhythm guitar and some keys. And I got really lucky. I actually played the the drummer that was in my band for most of high school was a great drummer and was really devoted to music and really wanted to be a professional musician and now is is like doing the same thing that we are he's a great Incredible. producer and writes as well but we were i mean that was i was so grateful when we found each other in terms of like then there then there were really two people being like this is we're going to take this more seriously than we're taking anything else and i loved it and obviously bands also have you know, so much turmoil or they can. And that was a, its own challenge in my life was, was having a best friend and having vehement disagreements with them and, you know, passionate disputes. And it was really hard. I, I look at like the friends of mine now who are in bands actively, like, you know, I've never been in a successful band but I look at them and I'm, I really empathize. I think being in a band is so hard. Yeah. It's like, it's like, three marriages simultaneously yep. it's really difficult that the the, the interpersonal really cuz it's 
it's four people, but that's 16 relationships, you know, the, the way each, yeah, yeah, each yeah, combination. Yeah. Absolutely. And Every it's permutation. really difficult. It's really difficult. It's why so few bands survive. And that's probably why so many artists now tend to be, tend to be solo artists. Yeah. And even with, with uh, my sister who, you know, in some ways we're kind of a band. I always really firmly had the sort of like, let's have this be your name let's have it be your image you make the videos you're the star of the of the videos there the the songs are about your life and your everything and then i'll do that separately and there's this kind of monarchy about it that that i think you know has been so helpful for the the both of us as collaborators because i'm not afraid to speak my mind but i also i have a feeling of like you know, when she's like, I hear your, I hear what you're saying, but I prefer the other way. Yeah. I have always in the back of my mind, like it's, it's really her at the end of the day doing this. It's her in the video. It's her at the front of the stage singing it. So it's, it's been a great sort of distribution of power, so to speak, that I'm, I'm very grateful for. Like, I think if we were standing next to each other in every poster or something, I'd have kind of a, like a chip on my shoulder that I'm grateful not to have beautiful and you get to do your and thing i do my own thing yeah completely totally. so it's it's yeah. all good it's like everyone gets to do their own thing it's the best yeah it's really nice but 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 i but then you know there are these undeniable bands like the strokes or the chili peppers or i think radiohead or you know they're these bands that i feel like do not exist without these without the chemistry of those people with each other. It can also work that way with an artist and a producer. If like, um, I'll give you an example, like the music that Charlie XCX made with Sophie is my favorite of, of the yeah. Charlie XCX music. And sometimes there's a musical relationship that gets established where it still has that, the, the, the pieces of it together are bigger make it make it bigger absolutely yeah and it seems like yeah. you have that with your sister as well because it's a, it really is you guys together she is the face and the monarch yeah. and the final word um yeah and you're writing a you know a ton of stuff together yeah. so it's yeah. yeah it's a chemistry thing you're totally right and i think about that with solo artists and bands all the time of like i get all excited when the pairing is really good i'm like oh that's the producer that did my other favorite album of that artist like i'm glad they're back in with them that's going to be a really good one i agree on the charlie sophie side too i i thought sophie sophie blew my mind like Me when too. i first started hearing sophie's music especially so sophie's solo records like yeah. blew my mind I, yeah, i'd yeah, never yeah. heard anything like that the early ones the instrumentals with the sped up vocals so cool radical so cool yeah. yeah very brave and breaking whatever rule you'd made up in your head it broke the rule and you're yeah. like wow that's exciting that was surprising yeah. when you heard it absolutely it's it was totally surprising i'm trying to think of another example of that of like music that really surprised me um i know you've worked with them but i felt that way as a kid about system of a down yeah. When I first heard System of a Down, I just had never heard anybody sing like that over. Yeah, me too. Me too. It they, they felt like completely, heavy metal. I got to see them play at the Viper Room the first time I saw them. It's tiny little, maybe 150 people. And uh, I just laughed the whole time. It was, it was so <laughs> ridiculous. You know, there, there was no context for it because, right. the you know, it is very 
aggro heavy metal, but the grooves yeah. were not heavy metal grooves. It was more like um, mm. different kinds of bounces and the vocals. Yeah. And they were doing these like Armenian dances on stage. And yeah. it was just so <laughs> odd. It was so odd. Um, but and I loved it. You enunciated really clearly. You understood everything, which is like also shocking for that. Like you'd hear a song once and like hear all those words. It was really exciting. Yeah. And the words were wild yeah. and complicated, <laughs> yeah. if you remember. And the phrasing made no sense. Absolutely. And then when him and Darren sang together, the harmonies were so beautiful. And it, it almost also didn't make sense <laughs> out of this chaos to have these, you know, beautiful anthemic harmonies. Yeah. I, I love them. In terms of things that you're unfamiliar with um, or or less experienced with or maybe like have less of an understanding of, when do you know to say, yeah, I like I'll do this. And when do you know to be like, you know what, like there's a better fit for this thing than I am because I'm going to bring with me like all sorts of ineptitude because I feel like you're obviously you've made such a, a diverse body of work and have there been instances where you've been like wow i've never tried to make a record like this but let's let's do it yeah there's nothing more fun for me than working on something different than i've worked on before and in terms of ineptitude i've been inept from the beginning so i bring i bring the same ineptitude to all the genres yeah. <laughs> um and it, it it has it has it has served yeah. it has served the purpose of it being true to whatever it is that it is, yeah. you know? I, I think there's a there's a great benefit in not knowing. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it, and I love it. And and the, the each when we're presented with a problem to solve, the in some ways, the less we know, the more inventive the solution is gonna be, or the more, you know, uh, the newer it'll be. Yeah. It won't be the default. Yeah. And, and the default bores me. Yeah, so true. I think of you, and, and I aspire to be this way as a producer, as a very sort of like felt but not seen presence on albums where I think like, to be honest, my least favorite kind of a producer is like when I hear somebody's new album and I'm like, did so-and-so produce this? And I look it up and they did. Like, I'm, I'm bugged by that because it takes away from the artist's identity, in my opinion. If I can tell who was at the very least engineering it oftentimes playing a lot of instruments and sometimes co-writing and so you do a thing that i aspire to do which is i don't know that you've made an album i know that i love the album and i look it up and there you are but i don't know that you are the person i think the the way that i was able to get to what you're describing of the 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 ability to have hands off came from the the two sides of like when i was working with Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and those groups, I would basically write all the music and sometimes, you know, write a bunch of lyrics. So very involved. And then I produced Slayer, which were a self-contained heavy metal band. And all I had to do was get the best version of what it was that they were doing. And I didn't have to add anything. And that happened very early in my career. That was right at the beginning after the hip hop records. So I got to see the two different sides of being more of the maker versus more of the supporter of this thing being made and fanning the flames that were already there to be the best that they could be. And every project is somewhere in between, you know, and it's whatever the project needs. Sure. There are some projects where I'm very involved in the creation of everything. And there are other times when what comes in is in its, in its demo form is 70% there. And then 
just through talking, we can get that other 30%. Right. But my goal is, as you say, no fingerprints. The less I have to put into it yeah. in some ways, the more true it is yeah. in coming from the artist. And and my dream, you know, I, I said once before that my dream is to produce an artist with them or meeting them or speaking to them <laughs> and having the work be their best album. Yeah. That's the key to it. It's like whatever it takes for it to be great. Yeah. It's not about me. It's just about it being great. And if my being involved more helps it more or if me stepping back more helps it more, I want what's best. You know, I want the thing to be the best it could possibly be. I think that all circles back to that thing we were talking about an hour ago, which was the sort of solution thing. And it, it makes sense that that's where you are. It's definitely where I'm trying to be in terms of let's talk about, let me point out the problem and then somebody's going to come up with the solution and I can make a suggestion if we need it, but let's, somebody's going to come up with it once we know what the problem is. And I think that that's definitely like, I've been in rooms where, as I'm sure have you, where somebody so desperately wants to be the person to solve the problem. And yeah. You know, it's a good instinct to solve a problem, but then it's their their identity is going to be so, you know, undeniable in that instance. And I think that is sort of part of being um, an invisible part of something is you're like, let's let how can I point this out without leaving my fingerprints all over the whole thing? You know, the other benefit of that is when when you're very um, holding fast on wanting it to be your idea you might not have the clarity to know if that's the best idea. Totally. So to to get the best idea takes a very soft grasp yeah. of those things. You want to be comfortable enough in yourself to say that idea that wasn't mine was better than my idea and feel great about that. Yeah. And, it, and it's great because ultimately, regardless of whose idea it is, everybody's on the same team to make the thing the best it could be. So yeah any internal rivalries really only undermine the project. They don't make it better. No. And all that matters is that the thing that people get to experience is the best it could be. So that's our, that's our mission. Absolutely. You and I have never met each other before this interview. So there's a sort of an added getting to know each other. But I do believe that if we were meeting off mic under casual circumstances, we'd be having the same conversation, which is a thrill to me because I've always wanted to talk to you. Same here. A pleasure speaking to you and I'm sure that next time it will be in person and it'll go much longer and we'll get to listen to music and it'll be great I'm looking forward to our in-person hang whenever that happens yeah me too why don't we both say our names and have them clash it'll be really cool it'll be like okay, a gang ready? of four song yeah. all right but I don't know what I, lo I don't have the script wait sit, tell me what we're saying again I forgot the whole thing already what are we saying let's do it all right ready yeah. yeah, count us off. This is this Phineas. Is Rick I'm Rubin. here with Rick Rubin. I'm and here this with Phineas. Is Rolling Stones. And this is Rolling Stones. Musicians on Musicians. musicians. On musicians. <laughs> yeah. I've got to be honest. That sounded really cool. It sounded incredible I to me. That's I didn't how you think make it something was great. Sound. We laughed. We laughed. Yeah. If we laugh, we win. Everybody's laughing. We did good. Yeah. You'll find a version of this conversation in the November issue of Rolling Stone. Musicians on Musicians is adapted from Rolling Stone's popular magazine franchise, produced by OBB Sound, and sponsored by Audible. This episode featured Rick Rubin with Phineas. 
Executive produced by Michael D. Ratner and Scott Ratner of OBB Sound, a division of OBB Media. And by Jason Fine, Bridget Chelsea, Christian Horde, Noah Schachtman, and Gus Wenner of Rolling Stone. Co-executive produced by Dylan Martyr of OBB Sound. Produced by Miranda Sherman and Toby Lawless of OBB Sound. Associate produced by Eve Bishop of OBB Sound. Voiceover by Eve Bishop of OBB Sound. Engineering by Frederick Burness, Daniel Chavez-Crook, Phineas O'Connell, Josh Falcon, Farrell Lopez, Dylan Neustadter, Miguel Romero, and David Lyon-Thompson. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Daniel Chavez-Crook of OBB Sound. Original music by James Asciutto for OBB Sound. Artwork by Joni Dobrov of OBB Media. Social media managed by Marissa Delgado of OBB Media.